1: Many of you will know that the first permanent settlement by the English in America was that at Jamestown in Virginia in 1609. You might know about the extreme hunger of the colonists and their relationships with the indigenous Americans. You might know of the transportation of the first 30 enslaved Africans on a ship called the White Lion to Virginia in August 1619. But did you know that a year before the White Lion set sail, another group was transported to Virginia from the City of London? Nearly a hundred impoverished children. And that this was the first example of a practice of transporting children to far colonies that would continue until the 20th century. These were poor children who had been apprehended in the city on the order of London's mayor before being incarcerated in Bridewell and then shipped across the Atlantic to work for Virginia's new colonists. This is a sobering story indeed. Talking to us today about it is Dr. Deborah Organ. She's an honorary research fellow at the University of Roehampton and has written extensively about the sociology and history of early childhood. She recently completed a master's in Tudor studies and her groundbreaking research that we're featuring today was written up as her thesis. Above all, she sought to explore what we can know about the children who were transported and their experiences. Deb, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. Pleasure to be here. It's an absolute delight to have you on. We've worked together and having already had a career as an academic, you decided to do the Master's in Tudor Studies that I was running some time ago and did some fabulous work. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. It's the culmination of your Master's degree, the thesis, in which you have done something that is truly original. The children we're going to be talking about have been, until now, largely overlooked. And they also travelled earlier than the more famous transportations, people might have heard of the 1619 project for example. Can you situate your findings in time and also in the sort of historiography in what people have written so far about this period?
2: In terms of previous writing in this area, there's been increased attention paid to the 30 enslaved Africans who were on the White Lion. This was a privateer ship that was traded with the English colonists in the area, that was renamed Virginia by the English. And this is now seen as a really pivotal date in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. So unsurprisingly, it's received a lot of attention. 1619 is particularly interesting, too, because alongside the unfreedoms of others, there is also this forging of democracy and ideas about freedom that are happening in this part of America. It's also a pivotal date because just after this period, we've got the Maids for Wives scheme in 1621. So there's people who've written about the women who went out to become brides with the colonists. But I think the children have received less critical and, i probably say, sustained attention. And so what I wanted to do is to illuminate in detail 1618 to 1620, a very specific period, and really bring to sharp focus, as much as I possibly could, the children's lives and experiences. They weren't just a number of people that were transported, they were individuals, and I wanted to give some sense of the texture of their lives.
1: Tell me about the sort of primary sources that you could draw on to access the lives of these children.
2: One of the most important sources that I used were the Bridewell court books. They name children. They give a sense of where the children were apprehended. And sometimes we get a lovely little snippet like where they were born or something like that, which is always so magical to go on. Now, of course, there isn't always a great amount of detail to go on and it really does sometimes give a sense that these children didn't count. But nevertheless, through these kind of cracks, these little fissures, I think there's some really interesting stuff that we can build on to try to illuminate more about these children's lives. The parish baptismal records were another source that I drew on. It was a bit like finding a needle in the haystack, but it was an important source. The Virginia Company records, they were a really good source to give a sense of the perspectives of the colonisers. After all, this was a company that wanted cheap labour to be sent out to Virginia. The Corporation of London records were also important. There are journals of common Council. there's Remembrancia volumes, and they give an insight into the Lord Mayor, the Alderman's perspectives on the transportations. But more particularly, actually, they gave a sense of children's lives in the City of London more broadly in this period. So you get some really interesting snippets about children's lives in those kinds of documents. Sometimes the Acts of Privy Council were really useful to draw on. And I suppose the last really important source were sources about London itself. So Stowe's Survey of London, for instance, and the digitisation of the 1562 Aegis map was really interesting because it gave me a sense of the topography of the City of London. And that was really important to try and imagine the children's lives as really being situated somewhere.
1: Now, the first set of sources you've just mentioned, the Bridewell Court books, give lists of those who were appointed to go to Virginia. And they are noted as boys and wenches. But to give listeners an example, it would say something like George Hams sent hither from Newgate kept to go to Virginia. And the thing that occurred to me was how do you know from such brief entries that they are indeed
2: children? How they knew that they were children is an interesting point in itself, because certainly when they were apprehending street children, were they going on any kind of proper date of birth or a baptismal date, I very much doubt it. I think they looked at the children in front of them and made some sort of assessment in terms of their physical size or maybe the kind of maturity that they felt that they had. But we do know that within these dates, 1618 to 1620, the Virginia Company and the City of London have come into some sort of agreement that they are going to send numbers of children across to Virginia so we can be pretty certain within those dates, from that reason alone, that list after list kept for Virginia are very likely to be children because they were going to be going across and be transported to Virginia. I suppose that makes sense the fact
1: that when it says a little boy, that will be somebody who's falling under the
2: minimum age for transportation, which is, well, it varies, at least eight, isn't it? Yeah, so the first group, the youngest would have been eight. For all we know, there might have been some a couple of younger and they just looked a bit older than their age. We can't know for sure. I think as well, the other thing that we have to remember is looking really carefully at the records. That's quite an easy win, what I just said, in a way. But a more nuanced look at the records can show us that sometimes a group was brought in together, but their outcomes were different. For example, on the 8th of August, 1618, we see a Robert Johnson, a Thomas Richardson... And a William Highfield, and they've been bought in by Constable Spicer at Cripplegate. They were all seen as vagrants. And the records tell us the young boys, that's the language in the records, the young boys, Richardson and Highfield, are kept for Virginia, but they're demarcated from Johnson. He isn't sent to Virginia. Now, I wonder why that is. He's not kept in Bridewell either, he's just left. Now, I wonder whether that was because he was older and not deemed suitable to go. There's other examples where the children clearly are much younger and they're sent back to church wardens to look after, so they're probably not even young enough to be kept in Bridewell. They're certainly not old enough to go to Virginia. So I think we can make some sorts of judgments from the records by looking very carefully at both the language used and the outcomes of children that come in together as groups, and how some are kept for Virginia in this period, but some clearly aren't.
1: So there certainly are some challenges in working with these records,
2: to say the least.
1: Let's talk about this notable decision to apprehend and transport children from the City of London to Virginia. Perhaps we can start by thinking about the attitudes that existed at the time towards poverty and towards vagrancy. What was going on in their heads? What were the circumstances and mental outlooks that meant that people could
2: reach a decision to think this is a reasonable idea? I think the first thing to think about is the way that the city of London was emerging as a major European city in this period. Its population was growing dramatically. It liked to display its opulence. It was a cultural epicentre. It had these kind of pageants and spectacles. And it really wanted to cement a sense of civic pride and identity. But there was a significant underbelly of people who really weren't wealthy, they didn't have a chance of being upwardly mobile like some people were. And unsurprisingly, it's from this group that children were transported. And I think we could conjecture a lot about the numbers of the poor in this era. But of course, Londoners were, I would argue, really feeling besieged by the numbers of poor. So although I couldn't give you some figure of that, I think we can say that perceptions of the poor were hugely problematic as a group. There was this term being used, a sturdy beggar. And a sturdy beggar was a term that was used to mean somebody that wasn't too old and wasn't too infirm to work. They were basically idle, They were the undeserving poor. They were a threat to social order. And I think that's really how these people were being seen. Now, even in Henry VIII's time, people were articulating this problem of the sturdy beggar then, and certainly there had been some legislation about this accordingly. But I think we could also think about this issue in terms of the shift to Protestantism that had happened over the 16th century take Bishop Pilkington for instance, he argued that popery would feed the hungry but it wouldn't correct the unprofitable drones who sucked the honey from the labouring bees. Now I love that quote because it really tells me so much about this kind of emotive language that was being used about the supposedly idle poor. They were seen as parasitic, they were seen as a big problem and I think we have to remember that This kind of poverty, the idle poor, this was akin to being a criminal at this time. It's quite hard to extrapolate that group away from being seen as a criminal.
1: So in this period, we get this division between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, which actually arguably
2: is still with us. Yeah. And it's interesting when we think about it in relation to children, because children were seen as particularly at risk They were seen as at risk from learning the ways of these older beggars. They might become entrenched in a life of idleness. And so places like Bridewell were almost like the kind of early intervention. They wouldn't have used that language then, but a kind of early intervention of their day to try to get poor children onto a life of virtuous exercise and work. It was seen as a more godly way of living. It was almost seen as a charitable way enterprise to be doing this it sounds terribly harsh I think to us today but I really think they thought they were doing a good thing for these children that is very
1: useful because to modern ears it sounds like something that is the very opposite of good it was cruel thing to rip them from their families or at least their situation and send them across the seas The other piece of context that I suppose that we need is to think about the situation of the Virginia Company in 1618. What is that?
2: It was a really interesting time. Of course, it had only been founded in the early 17th century and already there were factions emerging. So some real big problems happening because some people wanted to make money through growing tobacco alone. Other people wanted to really diversify the crops Other people wanted to find precious metals, which, by the way, they never did. There were people that wanted to use Virginia as a base for curbing Spanish power. And actually, they didn't really have much interest at all in developing a colony there. There were other people who saw their engagements with the Americas as a religious project, a project about bringing the Protestant faith to the indigenous peoples of America, either by force or by education. And the English people very much viewed this group as savages. Now, rather than it being a short term engagement in the region, this group of people often wanted to establish a long lasting colony. So although profit was the major motivating factor for going to Virginia, I don't think we should underestimate that kind of missionary like zeal through which people were thinking about the Americas. Now, by 1618, there was a really big problem happening for the Virginia Company. They weren't getting enough money coming in, i.e. investments, but they also wanted to increase their labour supply out there in the colony. And they were getting really adverse publicity. In 1609-10, to there was a period known as the Starving Time. This was quite well documented many people died in this period and there's even evidence today that there may have been cannibalism there's evidence from bones that this might have occurred there sickness overwhelmed the colony lots of people died because they just got sick from pestilent fever or something that overwhelmed the colony there drunkenness lawlessness it was really hard to keep order so far away from English shores. Sir Thomas Dale, for instance, he'd imposed strict martial law to try to make some sort of control happen over this colony. And the relationships with the local indigenous Americans, such as the Powhatan, they were patchy, sometimes violent at best. And they were understandably distrustful, I think, of this group of people who now looked like they were going to come and settle and stay there and take more and more land rather than just come along and trade a bit. So there's all these problems coming along. The company wanted to increase their labour supply, but they also wanted to cement a sense of permanence in the colony.
1: Okay, so hence the decision to transport children. But there's a final piece of the puzzle here as well, which is the direct involvement of the king, James the Sixth and First. Tell me about that.
2: Yes, James I wrote to Sir Thomas Smythe, and he was the treasurer of the Virginia Company at this time. And the king had been at Newmarket races, and he'd been troubled by what he called diverse, idle young people. And he told Thomas Smythe that he desired that they be sent to Virginia at the earliest opportunity so that they could be set to work. Now he couched this in terms of doing these people a charitable service because they could be, he said, reclaimed from the idle life of vagabonds. So from that, Thomas Smythe wrote directly to the Lord Mayor of London asking for his help in the matter. And he said, when you've apprehended the children, keep them at Bridewell and they'll be ready for the next ship that's sailing to Virginia. So we can see then that the interests of James I and the City of London, they were keen to rid themselves of what they saw as an undesirable group of people, but also put them on this godly, redemptive path of industry. And then the Virginia Company could satisfy its need for labour. So this group of people, their needs coalesced in a way that led to the transportation of these children. How did they
1: find the children that they transported? And given that they have it in mind as being something beneficial for those children, how did they
2: entice those children to go? I'm not sure some of the children would have had any choice to go. The first lot of children would have been over the age of eight years and they were apprehended off the streets and the markets. It's quite clear in the first entry that you see in the Common Council records that the children would have been between eight and 16 and they were going to be apprehended off the streets. So these children may well just be street children. They may not have had families or whatever to look after them. A little bit later on, the instruction was to go to families with children over the age of 10, so a little bit older at this point, and to say to these families, give up one of your children, they're overburdened with children, perhaps these families, that's the language that's being used, and send this child to Virginia with us. Now, that sounds awful in itself, but what seems even more problematic is that they said that they would take away these families' poor relief if they didn't send their child to Virginia. So, in effect, they're saying to these families, we're going to cut your welfare payment if you don't send your child. So, I think that's a huge level of coercion. I don't think a poor family would have been able to refuse a child to go. But the children were promised something. The children that have families, they were certainly promised that there would be some benefit for the children for going. So the bargain was that the children would, at the age of 24, if they were a boy, or 21 if it was a girl or on age of marriage, if whatever was earliest, that they'd receive 50 acres of land. Of course, this land probably isn't the Virginia Company's land to give, we should say this, but they would be receiving land, this 50 acres, on reaching that age. And the maintenance and the cost of transportation of these children, that was met by London citizens. £500 was given, so £5 per child, which was an awful lot of money, was paid for these children to go. But it was seen as a veritable act of charity alongside, thank goodness we can get rid of these rather unwanted, undesirable children.
1: Yes, I'm finding it hard not to believe that calling it a veritable act of charity was as much to assuage their conscience as anything else. It's a piece of gloss because actually what they're trying to do is reduce the amount they have to pay out to look after poor people and they're trying to reduce the number of vagrants on the streets.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it perhaps made a few people feel a little bit better on the surface about what they were doing but I certainly agree that it was a gloss. The prime purpose was to get rid of supposedly troublesome people on the streets.
1: And we need some labour over in Virginia and wouldn't it be good if we could breed our own generation so let's send some girls as well. Yeah.
0: Over on the Warfare Podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice
1: a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers,
0: and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War, and so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get maneuverability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts.
1: Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today, but the Finns signaled that they were united and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines
0: of military history.
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Who were the children? What can we know about their experiences? Your approach has been very much one of focusing on the agency and on the experiences of the children, which is a difficult thing to do in the circumstances. How did you do that?
2: First of all, I started by looking very closely at the Bridewell records to just try and identify who they were, how many there were, and I found 362 entries for the period I was looking at. It's not that simple because some children appear more than once, so in total I made this 337 children, 57 of these were girls. I can't be certain that all of these went to Virginia. In fact, I'm certain they didn't all go. But we can very much be certain, I think, that on the 27th of February, 1618, the entry then, when it talks about children being appointed to go to Virginia, I think we can be sure that group of nine children went. We can know something about these children because it tells us where they were apprehended. So, for instance, Cheapside and Lombard Street were popular areas for apprehending the children. Why? It makes a lot of sense to me that these were wealthy areas. Don't get confused with the word cheap. It was nothing cheap and bargain basement about Cheapside. It had goldsmiths and so on. They may have had a lot of support, the constables, from the people living there or trading there to get rid of these troublesome children on the streets. Places like Fleet Street, And Newgate Market were very popular places for apprehending the children. Perhaps the children were being near the taverns to grab little bits of food or perhaps grab a purse from an unsuspecting drinker. A marketplace would have stalls. Magistrates certainly talk about children nestling under stalls and finding straw for pillows. These major thoroughfares, these major places, might have been places which were quite easy to pick children off. There was certainly a lot of rests made near to Bridewell as well, and I think probably it was quite easy to take them a short distance rather than transport children way across London, affording them more opportunity to get away, being smaller, perhaps being a little bit more savvy and streetwise, being able to get away. So we can certainly find something about where they were apprehended. The Bridewell records also tell us something about the children's health status, so we know for instance that William Larratt was listed as a poor exposed boy and he was sent to St Thomas's hospital to be cured. He turns up later as those appointed to go to Virginia, so he's got better and he's going to Virginia, so that's quite sad actually in a sense. We also get a glimpse of children's working lives from the Bridewell records. I hasten to add Not for all the children. But now and again, you do get these little glimmers. So some had been apprentices. Robert Lowe had been a cooper. Thomas White had been a rope maker. But there's also other children like Anne Mumford, who's recorded as living an incontinent life. And she's described as being an old guest. And in Bridewell terms, being an old guest probably means that she's been there a few times before. And she's described as taking no warning. So incontinent life,
1: to just translate that, would mean unable to contain herself, but it's in terms of her moral
2: behaviour rather than her physical behaviour, isn't it? When they're referring to females, there is a tendency to use more emotive language, maybe it's my reading of it, but there just seems sometimes to be more sympathy in the record in how they're talking about boys. You're like little boy, poor little exposed boy. You don't really see the same sort of language being used about the girls.
1: Presumably because all the people
2: writing the records have been boys. Yeah, maybe. They're certainly all men, which is interesting. But they're certainly all in there for vagrancy, these children. I only found out of the group I was looking at... Elizabeth Harris who's recorded as being a pilfering vagrant. That's not to say that they hadn't committed what were seen as crimes beyond vagrancy but she's the only one I saw that's actually recorded as being a pilfering vagrant that I can be pretty sure actually went to Virginia. What's especially interesting to me is when you get a little sense in the Bridewell records where a child was born. Six of the children, it says, were born outside of London. For instance, Agnes Stanley was born in Lancashire. So how did she get to London? And I don't know any of this. It's a fascinating idea to think how this young woman had travelled down to London in some way, perhaps with her family, perhaps she'd come all that way for some sort of work. We just don't know. But it really is an interesting detail. Charles Branch and William Crampley are both listed as from St Andrew's Parish, Holborn. This is in the ward of Farrington Without. Charles had a father named John and he's listed as baptised on the 21st of January, 1608. So we know that he was 10 years old when he was transported to Virginia. And certainly if you think that parishes were quite small, they even say in the 1630s that perhaps there would have only been about 130 households in a parish. Given that church attendance was also compulsory in this period, I really think there's a strong possibility that children and families, if they had families with them, may have known each other, perhaps not friends or know each other really well, but I think they might have known each other on sight, or recognised each other. And from this, we can start to think about children as connected to others, as people who have lives beyond Bridewell. I also think that sense of possible connectedness comes from looking at who was coming in together. Now, Biographical dictionaries, so they're in alphabetical order, of course, they're really good for giving you a quick guide to finding a child or finding an adult. That's all very well. But what it does is it atomizes these children. It takes them away from that sense of them coming into Bridewell as a group. So when you look at the archival sources from Bridewell, so these Bridewell court records, you get a sense of who came in together. Perhaps they'd been begging together or they were at least near each other. They might have known each other. It just gives this glimmer of possibility that you don't see when you take them out of the context of the Bridewell records and alphabeticize the group. And the reason this is really important to me is that often official records on the poor, they tend to atomise rather than collectivise children's experiences. And more importantly, they tend to emphasise their wrongdoing. These children have come to Bridewell as vagrants, so they're seen as having done something wrong. And of course, their lives were far more full of a wealth of experiences beyond the activity of being a vagrant. And so it was really important, I think, to try and get a sense of this in my work.
1: I feel that what you said about a child going under a stall and finding straw for a pillow helps us start to realise that these are very much not criminals in our judgment, maybe criminals in the judgment of the early 17th century, but we have a sense of their experience and what had got them into this situation. But you also think that we can know something about children's agency, despite the fact that you said that many of them are not going of their own free will. What can we know about their own
2: sense of asserting their wishes? How can we see that in these records? So in the Bridewell records, for instance, non-compliance at chapel is clearly a problem. The court book on the 3rd of June 1619 gives us a list of people who were ordered to oversee the boy apprentices within the Bridewell building to make sure they keep good rule at prayers. There's a boy called Robert Lowe who gets co-opted by the Bridewell authorities to ensure that other boys don't play games on a Sunday and to make sure that they don't break windows at the hospital. Clearly some of the children weren't very compliant. There's certainly evidence that in the second tranche of transportations that there is a group of children, perhaps all of the children that were suggested to go for Virginia, that they were actually engaged in some kind of rebellion. And the historiography to date, and there's very little that talks about this, but what there is has tended to suggest that this revolt was instigated by outsiders, by default adults must have done this. Now, the evidence that exists, I would argue, really points to it being children instigating this revolt. The Virginia Company treasurer, who was Sir Edwin Sandys at the time, he wrote to Sir Robert Norton of the Privy Council, clearly stating it was children who were unwilling to go. We don't know why. Perhaps they had a sense of the uncertainty ahead of them. You didn't need to be reliant on literacy to get the news, Of course, we don't know about quieter, for want of a better phrase, quieter forms of agency that the children might have exhibited. But we certainly do get some quite powerful examples from the Bridewell records of children exhibiting agency.
1: So we're always dealing with them uh, some remove. We've got records about them, but we don't hear from them. And that must be so frustrating for you as the historian
2: working on them. It certainly is. And I suppose it's a problem for people who are working with anybody who might have been illiterate. You'd have the same sort of problem. There's also an issue, isn't there, about trying to speak for children. It's almost as if they couldn't speak for themselves. And I think they really were trying to speak for themselves in these kind of acts of rebellion. We're looking at records often of their misdemeanours. So we're hearing the voice of child via records of misdemeanors quite often, rather than the kind of wealth of their other experiences. So that sometimes skews our picture of these children in the past. Let's think now a bit about the process. You've
1: mentioned that they might be noted as being kept for Virginia or being appointed to go to Virginia. What's the gap between those two? I think it's a really
2: important shift in language. Most commonly, you see kept for Virginia, kept for Virginia. But this shift in language to appointed to go to Virginia happens on the 27th of February 1618. And I think the language shift here means that there is a shift from just being kept there to choosing. I think some sort of selection must have been going on at this time. Now, we don't know how these children were selected from a group, we don't know who did this selection or what it actually meant in detail. There's no primary source evidence of this but I think that language shift is really key. Now
1: the big question is what can we know of their experience of transportation? What can we know of what it was like for them to arrive in the colony? Is this something we can know
2: or must we just imagine it? We do know the kinds of ships that they went on. So, for instance, we know that the first tranche of children that left for Virginia in the late winter of 1618 and the early spring of the next year travelled on the George, the Jonathan and the Neptune. There was also a ship a bit later called the Duty and the children who went on that ship are known now as the Duty Boys, even though there were probably some girls too. I think before we even think about them sailing... We have to think about how they got to the ships. It's pretty likely that they would have gone from Bridewell by boat because Bridewell is a palace that's actually right on the River Thames. I don't think they would have tried to take the children to a sail ship going along by land. Now, of course, you've got to get under London Bridge at this point to get onto a larger sailing vessel. You can't get a large sailing vessel under London Bridge. So I think the children would have gone on smaller boats and then they would have picked up a larger sailing vessel a little bit further down the Thames. Probably that boat would have had to go all the way down the Thames, all the way around the south coast. They may even have picked up another ship there. For instance, we know the Maids for Wives often went from East Cows on the Isle of Wight. So it may be that there had been some changes of transport along the way. I just can't help wondering what the children were thinking about at this point. Did they know that they were going to be going to Virginia all along? Did they know that the passage was likely to be dangerous? There were certainly tempest narratives, ballads and stories about the perils of sea voyage. Did some try to escape en route? Pretty unlikely, I reckon, on water. Might have been another reason why they'd go by water and not by land. Were they excited to be going? Perhaps some were, but I suspect some were really apprehensive. We know a little bit about conditions on board of ship because we know the kinds of provisions that they were taking. We have to remember that passengers were not the only cargo. The colonists needed to have provisions and the Virginia Company lists in some detail the kinds of provisions that were being sent there. So you've got lists of wheat and vines and pitch and iron, even down to buttons and saws. I actually found more detail about the provisions than I found about the children, and it really speaks volumes to me. It would have been enormously squashed. The Jonathan had provisions, so lots and lots of provisions, but we know it also had 200 people on board, including some children. You couldn't bring many possessions with you and the conditions would have been enormously unsanitary. But I think for the children in my study, not having many possessions was what their lives were like. So perhaps that was worse for the more wealthy passengers. And there certainly were some wealthy passengers in alongside these children. And I just wonder perhaps whether there would have been some demarcation on board made between these more elite passengers For instance, George Yardley, who's pivotal in the history of Virginia, he went out on the George with Nathaniel Tatum and Nicholas Grange. I can't imagine that they'd be sleeping right next to each other. Perhaps he would have had nicer provisions to eat and such like as well. We definitely know that some children died on the way because when the Virginia Company wrote to thank the City of London for sending these 99 children to the colony, they talk about the children being safely arrived, save those that died along the way. They also say, the children are well pleased with their situation. Remember, it was couched as an act of charity. we don't know how many died. We don't have the names of those children that died. We just don't have any record of that. And just how well pleased the children were with the situation, I can pretty much bet that those children were not asked.
1: Of those who did arrive, Do we have any
2: evidence of their fate? We certainly know from the records of 1622 that sickness affected the colony badly. It always had affected the colony quite badly. So we know that probably many children died of what was called pestilent fever. The Virginia Company, I have to add, were often more concerned about the impact this had on productivity and the sickness of people and the death of these people. They were more concerned about productivity quite often when you look at the records. We know too that on the 22nd of March 1622 that a group of Indigenous Americans attacked the colony and they massacred many of the colonists. So we know that some of the Bridewell children died in the attack. For instance, John Barker, He was a child from St Bride's Parish and he died at Abraham Peercy's plantation. We also know some even more troubling, I would argue, things from the records. Most shockingly for me, in 1624, it was recorded that Elizabeth Abbott, who's very likely to have been one of the Bridewell girls, she was killed after receiving 500 lashes from Master Proctor. Now, I should add here, he had used a stout cord impregnated with fish hooks. And it also says in the court record that she had often run away and she'd been corrected for it. We don't know why she ran away. We don't know what she was running to. And I kind of leave a silence around what was perhaps happening to that girl. We can only imagine. But she clearly had an appalling end. I suppose a key question to ask is, did any of the children receive the land that had been promised to them? Did any of them rise to any sort of prominence? The muster of 1625 lists a few bridewell children, mostly boys. Nathaniel Tatum, he went on to obtain his own freedom, so he'd gone through the indenture period. He was living in Charles City County by this date, possibly on the land that he'd been promised at the end of the indenture period. And he actually went on to own quite a considerable amount of land. But I cannot emphasise enough that his story is not the norm. For most children, being transported to Virginia didn't have this happy ending of attaining 50 acres of land most of the children had died by that point. But then we mustn't forget, of course, that their lives would have been very difficult here in England too. You say that these children
1: are commemorated at St Bride's Church in London today. What does it say
2: and what do you think it should say? So when you go into St Bride's Church today, there's a small, and I have to say quite a temporary looking note, And it's part of a wider commemoration that the church has about its links with the Americas. And the note describes Bridewell as a school from which the children were sent to help populate Virginia. It gives the impression they had a good future ahead of them. They'd receive land on their coming of age. Now, for me this is a really romantic view of what happens. For me, it presents the forcible transportation of children as some kind of benevolent action. So I suppose what I'd like to see is some kind of commemoration of these children that acknowledges what the evidence tells us. I should add that St Brides, at least they say something, but they weren't the only parish from which these children were taken. So I think it would be really great if there was some kind of city of London-wide commemoration of these children and just what happened to them. Well, Deb, thank you so
1: much for telling these stories. I also feel grateful on behalf of these children that you have taken the time to find out their story. You have honoured them by bringing out their truth as far as the evidence will take it. And I'm very grateful to you for that. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at Not Just Tudors or by email notjustthetudors at com.